Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. It's May 5th, 1945. Adolf Hitler has just committed suicide five days prior. Chief of Operations Officer Alfred Jodl and Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel will order the unconditional surrender of all German armed forces two days from now. It will be on this day, however, that the strangest battle of World War II will unfold. Under the ashes of Stalingrad, Kursk, Normandy, and the innumerable battlefields of Europe, the vision of the Third Reich has now perished. Millions of German soldiers paid the ultimate price, and now millions more are left to defend their own cities, towns, and families. Striving to retain their honor and dignity at all costs, they were forced to battle their own elite fighting force, the Waffen-SS. While Germany's struggles in World War II have come to an end, another internal conflict has just begun, leaving their house divided. You're listening to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Don't forget to follow us on all major podcast distributors. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Missing Chapter Podcast. We are sitting here with one of our our guest speakers, number two uh, in Season 1. We we look forward to hearing from him today. You're going to recognize him right off the bat. He's the voice of our introduction that we get a lot of compliments on. And before we get to that, two things I'd like to to kind of tackle. First off, we are enjoying our first dose of Death Wish coffee, which if you're not familiar, uh, is home based out of Saratoga Springs, New York. It's dubbed the, the world's strongest coffee. And I think after having some of the dark roast this morning and feeling it pulsate through my body, I would probably have to go ahead and and agree. I would concur. Get, yes. Yes. I'm seeing a very um, uh, strong reaction to the Death Wish coffee, but it's it's extremely good, extremely enjoyable. And uh, we're enjoying that. Um, I also want to shout out uh, to somebody else that they're associated with, Rad Soap in Albany. Uh, they send some of their beans to the Rad Soap company, and they actually make a really amazing soap with the beans. And it's a natural, natural exfoliator. Really? And it's something I've used, and I'm not going to throw out a plug if, if it's something I, I haven't tasted or tried. And Rad Soap and their coffee um, brand is extremely, extremely nice, especially in the winter months. Well, you sold me. There you go. The second thing I want to do is just touch on a little bit of the mailbag that we've gotten over the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of our faithful listeners, Tracy, had asked us, are you worried ever about people fact-checking you? And, and maybe contacting you and, and questioning some of your facts. What's your take on that, Phil? Because well, first I think of all, that was a good we, question. That's a great question. And, and it's a question that we'd love to hear because that we know that, that listeners are paying attention. And, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of interpretation in history. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the, the best pieces of history that, that invokes so many conversations between people, uh, no matter you know, creed, color, religion, et cetera. So I think that's, that's the conversation starter. So to have that that 
um, as a possibility. Like when we when we look at these stories and we do our own research, we try to promote the same things we we encourage our students to do, uh, which is you know always double triple check, look at multiple sources, and and be honest when it comes to areas where there are some some interpretive, even maybe even vague opportunities for people to say this could go either way. So I think, you know, there's a few times where in our uh, one of our first episodes about the uh, license plate of the Archduke, you know, we did say that there are some legends in regards to this. Um, and then there, we also have some some full blown facts that can be proven with evidence. So I think it's one of those one of those things where if you do your due diligence prior to the episode and, and do your research, then um, there really should be no question for for fact checking. But we always, always welcome uh, people with maybe a, a slightly different interpretation. That's the beauty of having conversations with people. And that's what we love. Love it, Phil. Um, second question uh, that was sent to us, where do your ideas originate? Which I think is also a great question. And I immediately think, well, out of out of personal interests, obviously, I mean, we, we have time periods that we're personally interested in. Um, I think we would probably talk about, you know, the curriculum that we've dealt with over a number of years and some of the topics that we discuss and teach to our students. I think allow for, for some very uh, creative and, and untold obscure stories. And it also, as you, as you start delving into some of these topics, you always, always find details that are just so mind boggling that it, it you have to do more research on it, right. especially if you're a history buff like we are. Uh, you know, we, we tend to, to gravitate towards the stories that, you know, we obviously we, we've never heard of or the stories that are just so interesting it's hard not to tell so once you get down that rabbit hole it's kind of hard hard to get back um but yeah once we find those those topics we bounce them off each other and uh our the facial expressions we we yeah. have when we hear about these stories is it's probably very similar to some of these listeners too right and i think more often than not the stories start with people and the stories of people that then evolve into you know what time period and what events were they associated with which is interesting because we, you know the people are really what these stories are are constructed around. Right, right. Well, speaking of that, um, being constructed around uh, some really interesting stories that uh, maybe history textbooks forgot. Um, as Phil said, we're, we're sitting here with our the voice of our introduction, uh, Mr. Chris Bauer. Uh, very history-oriented mind, very brilliant-minded man. We're, we're lucky to have him. We're blessed to have him. And uh, we're excited to hear what he's got to say because I think just from the very, very brief overview uh, that he has told Phil and I, I think this is going to be quite the interesting topic. So, Chris, take it away. So it's great to be here, first and foremost, guys. What you are doing with this podcast is just, it's its awesome. You guys are doing a great job, and the stories have been incredible. And so doing research, I came across the story of the Battle of Etar Castle, which is in Austria. Um, in the waning days of World War II, I stumbled upon the story of of a struggle to free French POWs between Waffen SS and American soldiers, but not just American soldiers, but American soldiers who had joined forces with Wehrmacht soldiers, which are, which is the German army. Um, and so we see this very unique battle where German and American soldiers sided together to repel the elite fighting forces of the German third Reich. I had never heard of this story at all in all my days of talking world war ii learning about world war ii and at first it was unbelievable i'm thinking this could not have actually happened so i did some research and come to find out it absolutely did happen and um it happened on may 5th 1945 uh 
this date significant because this is the day that this battle was coined the strangest battle of World War II. Um, but what makes it so strange is the context in which it really unfolded. Seven days prior to May 5th, Adolf Hitler, leader of the Third Reich, had committed suicide in his underground bunker in Berlin. Um, at that point there, the Soviets and Germans were concluding a savage war of attrition, unlike the world had ever really seen, the scale being absolutely horrifying. Um, and two days from this day of May 5th, Admiral Donitz would radio to Wilhelm Keitel and Alfred Jodl, leader, uh, leaders of the German Reich at this point, the go-ahead to allow all German armed forces to surrender unconditionally to the Allies on all fronts. Um, at, at this point, the 13.5 million soldiers who were mobilized for the Third Reich, those who had not died in battle, were really trying to surrender to any nation that they possibly could that wasn't the Soviet Union. Chris, this is good stuff. And I think, you know, like most of the listeners, I myself love World War II. I get caught up in a lot of what led up to World War II. Hmm. I get caught up in a lot of what went on during World War II, some of the turning points. Admittedly, a lack of my knowledge comes into what happened in kind of the the days and the weeks and the months at the end of the war. So what role, I'm interested to see, will the will this castle play in all of this? Well, that, that's a great question. Phil, let me set the stage, okay? Imagine this. We're in northern Austria, May 5th, 1945. Lieutenant Jack Lee, commander of the 23rd Tank Battalion, is literally resting on his laurels at this point. They had just fought this, this excruciating war, and he knows that the war is coming to a conclusion, and the last thing he wants to do is have his soldiers die on his command fighting these useless battles, um, you know, fighting SS resistance. So he is really trying to just sit back and let this thing play out. And so he just took over Kufstein, which is a town near Schloss Eter, which Schloss means castle in German. And so this castle is first mentioned in land records as early as the year 1240. This thing is ancient. It's passed through different family hands and it's owned by different people. But in 1943, it was basically taken over by the Wehrmacht um, on order of the SS. And they were planning to use it as a detention facility for VIP prisoners. Um, and it was under the operational command of Dachau. But funny enough, daily life really wasn't that bad for the prisoners. Um, and there were many, but some of the notable ones are uh, Michel Clemenceau, who was politician, and he was the son of the former prime minister, Georges Clemenceau. Uh, we had the sister of Charles de Gaulle, who was a very famous World War I um, general. He was uh, very highly respected by the French. He was actually caught by the Germans at the Battle of Verdun. So he's a war hero, right? And he also led um, a counterattack against a Nazi advance um, in France in 1940, it was unsuccessful, but still very highly symbolic to the people. They really revered him a great deal. So his sister is one of these prisoners. And another notable one is this guy named Jean Barotra. He was a champion tennis player under Vichy, France. Um, but he had run afoul of the regime, was actually put in prison because he was trying to escape to ally, ally lines. Um, and so at this point, Edward... Viter was the last commander of Dachau concentration camp. And as such, he was basically responsible for this castle and this detention center too. In his last days at Dachau, he actually ordered the execution of 2,000 prisoners. 2,000 prisoners. Um, and somehow, some way, perhaps by word of mouth by the guards, the prisoners of Eter Castle actually heard about these killings. So when Viter himself comes to the castle, these prisoners are saying, okay, you know what, things have been okay, but this is it. 
right. you know, the sign of an SS officer is death. It right. is literally death. Um, and so that's what they were worried about. But surprisingly enough, SS Hauptsturmfuhrer Weiter, the only death he had on his mind was his own. And so he actually takes out his Luger and he he shoots himself right in the heart and it doesn't kill him. He doesn't actually die. So he then puts another bullet into his brain. And at, at that point, the second in command, um, uh, a man of the name of his last name is Vimmer. He was like, I'm out. Mm-hmm. I am out of here. This is such a bad scenario. And so he left. Um, he actually promised the prisoners before he left that he would uh, kind of make sure that they were protected. Um, but he didn't really do much to enforce that. And so when he left, the SS guards themselves also left. So this entire castle is just, it, it's not tended to by anyone. It's just the prisoners. Um, and so the prisoners, they, they realize that what they can't do is just wait to be liberated because they have no idea what's going on. They don't, you know, who knows if the SS is going to come back. They're not playing any, uh, taking and, any risks. And they've lucked out. I mean, essentially, oh, because completely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've, they've already really mm-hmm. by avoiding any sort of execution, you know, at, at the hands of the guy who was running Dachau and has already proven himself to be a monster. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they have to take advantage of this scenario. Yeah, this this doesn't happen. Right. This doesn't happen. And so among the other prisoners, there are a bunch of Slavic servants, if you will. And a Czech man by the name of Zanimir Kukovic was among these, these prisoners. And he volunteered enthusiastically to say, hey, I'm going to go find allied military help to rescue us. It, it, it makes no sense for all of us to leave here. Mm-hmm. A big group, the SS, the SS will see us and... We stand no chance. And so he leaves, right? And as he leaves, the prisoners, they find themselves stumping upon this weapons cache of SS, I mean, pistols, rifles, machine guns, grenades. Wow. The SS really, did. they just up and left. Um, and so back to Zonomir, he runs six miles from the castle to a town called Virgil. Um, much of the town was actually occupied by elements of the Waffen-SS, but... Again, so unlikely, he actually he runs into this Wehrmacht major named Josef Gangel. Now, Gangel was a, a low-level commander in the German army, and he had fought in Ukraine. And he was actually part of the uh, military garrisons that were shipped from the eastern front to the western front to try to stop you know, the, the running tide of the Allies pushing through Italy and France. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, he had really grown a follow of the Third Reich. He lost faith in, in the leadership and just what the Nazi – ideology had really turned out to be a lot of German soldiers truly just weren't about that, um, including this, uh, this major. And so Zonimir finds, he talks to, to, to Josef Gangel and he kind of tells him, okay, you know, Hey, we have a bunch of VIP prisoners in, in this castle. Uh, the SS have left and Gangel's like, well, you know what? I'm okay. I will I'll go to Innsbruck and find American soldiers and let them know everything you just told me. And so Zonimir goes to Innsbruck. But Gangl himself, you know, perhaps, perhaps he was trying to make inroads with the American soldiers. He knows the war is ending too, mm-hmm. and he's thinking, well, you know, what can I do to maybe make this a little better for me and my men? Do you think the fact that these prisoners had some recognizable names that this was, uh, to your own admission, you know, high-profile prisoners, right? Do you think that's playing a, a role in all of this? Is that the war winds down? You don't want to. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to you know, possibly kill somebody 
and have that death tied right. to their to your name and your you know you know Phil that's your entirely possible from my research I couldn't really tell okay and it's it's very well known that what SS business was was very separate a lot of times from the Wehrmacht and and Gangel wasn't a commander of armies he mm-hmm. was just leading some you know some some garrisons and platoons locally in the area and so perhaps he could have he may have recognized some of those names but perhaps not either way he acted the same right and so what he does is he actually goes himself and takes his men to Kufstein the town that lieutenant jack lee had just liberated and so as he goes there kukovich also is going to innsbruck and he encounters before he even gets there the 103rd infantry division and he again tells them everything and so they pull together a platoon of their of their best and they just start making their way towards the castle mm-hmm. and um on their way they encountered austrian anti-nazi partisans who were already fighting the ss within the immediate vicinity i mean this entire time imagine yeah these guys are resting but they hear gunfire right battle is right on the doorstep at all times um and so immediately when they meet these anti-nazi partisans artillery rounds start falling all around them and so the, their progression towards Etar Castle, you know, grounds to a halt and they actually wait for the cover of the trees or in the cover of the trees mm-hmm. to kind of wait for the barrage to lift, which eventually it does. As this is happening, Josef Gangel, on the other hand, he rolls into Kufstein, right? His, his truck and his convoy has this huge white flag fluttering in the wind, you know, signifying that they are not Wehrmacht soldiers that are trying to fight for the Third Reich, that they are surrendering or that they, you know, they're just, it's not a battle formation by any means and so he actually tells some of the soldiers what was going on and that earned him an immediate trip to the 23rd tank battalion's command post here he talks to lieutenant jack lee of all people and so lee has this deal with him gongo basically informs him that the ss have laid various mines and booby traps along the way and he he is aware of that and so Lee says, hey, we're going to work with you. Deal? And Gongle says, deal. Yeah. This is, again, yeah. this doesn't happen, but right. it happened. All the pieces are falling together. Right. So Lee takes some of his soldiers. He takes two Sherman tanks, right? Six soldiers from the all-African-American Company D of the 17th Armored Battalion, hmm. elements of the 36th Infantry Division, kind of provides some extra firepower. Um, and so... Because of the information given to them by the German element in this new force, they're aware that the Waffen-SS were putting up really, really fierce rearguard resistance throughout northern Austria at this point, trying to protect the southern flank of Germany, making sure that the invaders do not enter you know, the, uh, the fatherland at any cost mm-hmm. as much as they possibly can. Um, but fortunately, uh, SS Totenkopf divisions, which means death's head in German. These are some of the most feared SS divisions in all of the war. Um, again, guys, you do not want to meet in any way, especially not on the battlefield. Um, they had just pulled out of Virgil. And so this mixed American and German force, they set off towards the castle, right? And there's only one substantial bridge kind of blocking the path that they have to cross. And of course, the SS has wired it completely up with explosives. The Americans would have never known. The Americans would have never known, and perhaps you know they would have tripped something, and they would have just fallen into the into the local river. But the Wehrmacht to themselves, they actually they they remove the explosives and mm-hmm. allow safe passage for this mixed group of uh, 
this mixed military reserve group. That's amazing. It is yeah. amazing. It really is. And so Lee leaves one of his tanks right there by the bridge to protect the crossing route. And so as they leave that, that tank there and a couple some men there, they go forward and they actually encounter SS trying to set up roadblocks. And so immediately the Germans fire at the SS, the SS fire back, but the SS kind of melt into the woods rather quickly. They don't mm-hmm. really provide a lot of stiff resistance, um, which again was something that was kind of suspicious. Right, so I was like, right. okay, well, they're coming back. They're definitely not gone for good. Um, they arrive at the castle. And of course, the French prisoners are absolutely bewildered. They see this lone tank with a mixed group of American and a couple truckload of German soldiers. They... What would you think, Phil? Right, if you saw that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely not what you're expecting, you know, by any stretch. Right. Okay. So and so they get there. Lee takes a list of the French prisoners, um, himself, Gongel, and there's actually a, a young Waffen SS officer who joined Gongel back in Kufstein, and they're they're devising these defensive strategies as to if the castle was attacked they weren't necessarily expecting an attack but they had just encountered ss literally you know a couple hundred meters right. away they're around and they know that they're so they want to know okay how do we defend this place until we can get more backup to to arrive here and so as a devising they have maybe about half an hour to 45 minutes to kind of get things together but what they don't count on is the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier, this elite division called the Gutz von Berlichingen unit, a very highly trained, highly specialized SS unit. There, they surround the castle. They've been they, they've been watching this, and then they open fire with MG42 machine guns, and their goal is to execute all the prisoners, mm-hmm. all these high level prisoners. So this is irreconcilable. You know, right. They have to now defend themselves. And the Wehrmacht soldiers and Gongel's crew were the first to return fire with the Americans then being quickly to kind of organize right behind them. And everyone at this point, it is a fire fight. Um, but they have the protection of the castle. They've, they've formed defensive positions. It's actually harder for the SS to take this right now than it is for uh, them to kind of hold up and, and defend themselves. Right. But they're on a really limited time here. Mm-hmm. Um, so machine gun bullets are pinging all over windows are breaking. And all of a sudden in the main building, this, this giant roar of an 88 millimeter anti-tank gun roars and a shell hits the main building. They know this is big trouble. Mm -hmm. They do not have what it takes to hold up long after, you know, this kind of weaponry, another roar and a second explosion and Lee's tank himself, the one that he put, he actually put this tank, this Sherman tank, in front of the main gate of the castle, gets hit. The corporal inside, he's, he's, he's trying to use the tank's machine gun to hold off the SS. The, the tank gets hit, and the corporal actually survives the initial hit, is able to jump out of the tank. Um, he, he's, he's able to get and scale the wall and get back into the castle. Um, right, at, right then, another 88 millimeter anti-tank round hits the tank and the tank explodes. So this guy barely survived. Right. Um, and, and the SS troops are, they know how to take fortifications like mm-hmm. this. Again, these are highly trained soldiers. Right. The best so, of the best from the Germans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And so they're swarming the lower walls of this castle while the Germans and Americans are trying to pour fire in them from the upper walls, um, from the upper walls and the rooms. And not only that, but the French prisoners, all these high level prisoners, 
They're strapped up with SS weaponry. They don't know how to use it. Right. But hey, this, they're fighting for their lives. They're going to do what they can. They get in on the action. They're firing back as well. And so this battle, this battle literally goes on for about an hour long. And several of the Wehrmacht soldiers and Josef Gongel himself actually die in that time mm. period. Um, Gongel himself was actually on the rooftop observation post with Lieutenant Lee trying to locate the 88 millimeter anti-tank gun and a German sniper actually shot him and killed him. So while this battle's going on, Phil, right? Remember, Kukovich alerted the 103rd infantry battalions in Innsbruck. And so at this point, while this battle's going on, they're traveling to Schloss Itar and they reach now at this point, the bridge where, remember when Lee left that one tank there to post Yes, kind of protect correct. that rear guard. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they get there. Um, and from this point, they can actually see the battle raging in the distance on the castle. And they're probably just as confused as, as mm-hmm. anything, wondering what is going on. Um, but they know that that's where they need to go. And so, and so the commander himself of the 103rd tried calling Lee on his military phone. It doesn't work because Lee's a little bit preoccupied, mm-hmm. we might say, right? Um, and one of the Austrian partisans suggests, well, I know how to call the actual castle that he's in. I know the number. I don't know how they necessarily did it, but yeah, I, I, crazy. Yeah. Crazy. The look on my face. I'm thinking, is this a landline? I mean, yeah. We're, is this uh, a movie? A movie? Or, uh... <laughs> but so, so the commander of the 103rd calls, right? And soon enough, he's speaking to Lieutenant Lee. <laughs> On the phone. Lee's telling him the situation, but telling him, hey, we've been battling for over an hour. We are running dangerously low on ammunition. And if we, these SS soldiers will massacre us within minutes if they can detect that we've run out of ammo. Right. Um, and so he affirms he everything's understood. That rescue reserve group is roaring towards Castle Etar. Um and also with Lee's other tank that they found at that, that mm-hmm. bridge. And so at this point, the SS are still pressing the, the attack. They're recognizing that the defenders have lessened in numbers um, and that they're, they're kind of smelling blood. Their right. sharks are really smelling blood. So within the castle at this point, Jean Barotra, remember the former tennis champion, he's talking, he's enthusiastically saying, hey, I'm still in great shape, like physical shape. Right. Let me run and try to guide this reserve group through the village that they have to go through to get here quickly. Mm-hmm. Cause we, every second is so precious. Um, and, and so Lee's like, absolutely. And so Jean does that. He scales the wall, jumps and evades the SS soldiers and reaches that, that reserve convoy. Meanwhile, at this point, Lee understanding that help is coming, but, still doing doing everything he can to muster the best defense of the castle that he can. He meets and he, he figures out with the defenders that, okay, we are going to retreat into all these rooms if necessary. We will fight with bayonets and our fists if we have to. But that's what they're down to. I mean, it shows just like you said. I mean, every second is counting and yeah. every bullet that they have yeah. access to is is nearly gone. Right. I mean, it's... At this point, kill or and be honestly, killed. Honestly, it and, is movie-like because right. this this situation is now this dire mm-hmm. it is absolutely red red light okay last this is it this is yeah. absolutely it 
And so the SS are pushing forward and they actually set up the 88 anti-tank gun in front of the main gate of the castle. And they're going to explode. They're going to knock this gate down, mm. send in their best, execute everyone and out. Mm. That's their goal. And of course, as soon as they do that, the relief force arrives just in time, opens fire on them. The Waffen SS literally melt into the woods within 10 minutes. Some of them actually surrendered to the, uh, the new, the newly arrived force. Um, and so this relief force comes and when the dust kind of settles, they see this mixed group of French VIP prisoners, black soldiers, black American soldiers, white American soldiers, German soldiers. And they're probably thinking, what is going on here? And at this point, Lieutenant Lee comes out of the gate to meet them and says, what kept you? <laughs> W. Edwards Deming once wrote, The world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. All right, well, Chris, I think it's safe to say this is a pretty unbelievable story. I, I just have uh, one question after listening to all that. I'm just dying to know, I'm begging to know what happens to these guys. Well, that's a great question. So the rescue force removes the dead and cares for the wounded, right? The VIP prisoners are driven off, presumably to resume their careers and you know resume their political disagreements. Lieutenant Lee and the Germans, they are driven back to Kufstein. The Germans are actually marched to POW camps, but are afforded a lot of leniency. And Jack Lee himself, he, he's awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And, and that concludes the story of the, war, the war's strangest battle. And I think the reason, though, why this battle is so unheard of, though, is actually because there was a house divided. Because of Major Josef Gangel and those Wehrmacht soldiers that joined the defense of the castle, it didn't allow the Waffen-SS to go in and massacre the prisoners. Had they done that, had they massacred the sister of Charles de Gaulle and the son of the former prime minister, this would have been a very well-known battle. But because of their heroics, because they stood against their own special forces, the Waffen-SS were not able to achieve their goal. Their objective was foiled. And so because of that house divided, this battle is sadly not as widely known as it really should be. And do you feel like it was it – was, an internal morality that, that kind of sparked that, 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 that means to go against their own house essentially. Right. Well, you're, you're touching on a subject that a lot of historians are trying to figure out more of because there were a lot of German soldiers who did not buy into the vision of the Reich and perhaps their own goals um, in some way aligned with, with Hitler, but many of them did not. And in this case, absolutely. Josef Gangel, he, he understood what was going on by this point, especially with the, the concentration camps in Dachau, um, and he made a really, really respecting – a choice I respect greatly to not support it. Even if it was only at the end of the war, he still sacrificed everything to make sure that his uh, his legacy wasn't part of the Third Reich's. It's incredible. It's uh, it's an admirable story. It's it's a great ending, too, to a, to a story that's so devastating in itself, which could have been even worse, obviously. Right. 
But uh, Chris, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank today. you very much, Chris. This Anytime, was, guys. This was great. Thank was you. The best is yet to come. That's right. And we got a we got a couple of great episodes, Phil, coming up. Yeah, next week we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, a, a kind of a gruesome discovery on the on the set of a TV show in 1977 opened up the storybooks to uh, a lonesome cowboy and his attempt to make it rich in the 1900s. We'll see how that turns out. Let's go. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Chris Bauer. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.